God is good all the time. Pray with me. Father God, we thank you for grace today. We are a God-graced people, blessed, Father, by your unmerited favor, by your mercy and your love, which are new every morning. And Father, for all the gifts and implications that come with your grace, we are a grateful people today. How can we not thank you, God, for all that you've done for us? And may our lives reflect that gratitude, Lord, as we become not only grace-filled, but graceful and gracious people. Help us to give the grace that we have received. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, choir. That was beautiful. I'm looking forward to next Sunday night. Our choir favorites, our Tallowood favorites, we'll share together in worship, and it will be a great time together. Miroslav Volf writes, to triumph fully, evil needs two victories, not one. The first victory happens when an evil deed is perpetrated. The second victory when evil is returned. After the first victory, evil would die if the second victory did not infuse it with new life. Some weeks ago, I shared with you about my friend in Zambia, Mulenga, who was falsely imprisoned and was faced with the dilemma of either helping the man who had landed him falsely in prison and nursing that man back to life or letting that man die. But he chose, based on the teachings of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, to help that man live. And by helping him live... In a counterintuitive way, he discovered that he was set free from prison because that man, in response to his kindness, pleaded with the authorities in the prison to let my young friend go free. Sometimes uh, life mirrors art. You may remember Alexander Dumas' book, The Count of Monte Cristo, when Edmond Dantes is also falsely imprisoned and And beaten by the prison warden every year on the anniversary of his entry into prison. He doesn't even know why he's there. But he inscribes on the wall, God will give me justice. And the day comes when he escapes from prison. And he has the chance to exact vengeance from those who have wronged him. But he discovers that vengeance is not nearly as sweet as he might have thought Just you and God this morning. Who is that person that you can't forgive? Who is the one given the chance that you would avenge yourself against? And I wonder if that person is in your own family. When Joseph's brothers concocted a lie out of fear trying to convince him after their father's death that he should forgive them, he told them, I already have. And the implications for him and for them are too big 
for us to miss. Would you open your Bibles with me this morning to Genesis chapter 50? I want to read verses 15 through 21 with you. Maybe in your uh, favorite TV series, from time to time, they will build to a crescendo, and then you'll see those dreaded words across the screen, to be continued. I've never done that with sermons. I try to say what I'm going to say and then sit down. But what I have to say out of this passage will actually take me two weeks to say. So next week, um, and by the way, these verses are the reason I preached this whole series. I heard a message by Tim Keller some months ago, and I thought, I need to say that to Tallowood, so where do I begin? And went back and finally ended up with Abraham and his family, but it all comes down to this and next week, September 11th, 10 years to the day after that great catastrophe. We'll eat the Lord's Supper together next week. We will remember. We will remember what Christ has done for us. But to do that well, we need to start today. So let's stand together and hear the word of the Lord for us. It's found again in Genesis chapter 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you're to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now, Please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then... Don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. You may be seated. Sometimes it takes a funeral to bring a family together. Sometimes it's at funerals that we gather together with our families. I've noticed that a funeral can bring the whole family under the roof, but it can't necessarily bring them together. You may have heard, you may have experienced in the context of a funeral and the aftermath, great strife within a family. Now Jacob is dead. The third generation of the patriarchs is gone. And suddenly it dawns on ten older brothers that they have grievously mistreated their younger brother. And it may be that this younger brother, who now literally is in charge of the world, might want to pay them back. This runs in the family system. Remember, it goes back to Esau saying, when dad dies, Jacob, you will die. 
I will kill you. But Jacob lives to a ripe old age. God has blessed him with all of these children, but some of the brothers mistreated the other brother, and the other brother has been in captivity and slavery and ridden, remember, the roller coaster. And now he's at the top of the heap, and his brothers realize that they sold him into slavery, but functionally now they're his slaves. And their lives are at his disposal. And they think it would be a good time to make amends again, just in case. But the beauty of this family system is that there have not only been burdens and problems and arguments and fights and strife, but they were all there the day when Jacob said to Esau, I'm your slave. This is the model for these older brothers. They've mistreated their brother like their father mistreated his brother. They were there when their father said, I'll be your slave, Esau. And Joseph was standing right next to his father when Esau said, welcome home. There is hope for our families. In every family I know about, if yours is different, please tell me after the service. In every family I've ever known about, there was conflict There were fights and arguments, and I don't know why, but we are more willing to forgive a total stranger than we are our own parents, our own siblings, our own children. I wonder, who was it who rubbed you the wrong way? Who said something about you? Who defrauded you? Who hurt you in a way that you cannot forget or forgive? Can I just ask you, when they mistreated you, was it worse than being thrown in prison? Was it worse than being made a slave? Was it worse than being crucified? Was it really? In this day when politicians plead for civility and, and at government level and political levels and, and athletic levels, there is all kinds of enmity and strife and longtime rivals but family members become at odds with each other. I wonder if our own families don't mirror the very culture around us, and I wonder if there is hope for people like us. How can we possibly forgive? Joseph shows us the way. He shows us three things here in verses 19, 20, and 21. First, he says, I have to forgive you because I'm not God. Second, he says, I have to forgive you because no matter what you intended... God was working for good. And finally, he says, I will forgive you because I've received kindness from God, so I will give kindness to you. If you ask me, how can I possibly forgive my family for the way that they have hurt me? I would say to you, because you're not God. I would say to you, because God might be working that slight or that harm in a way that actually brings spiritual and eternal good in your soul. How can you forgive your family? Because the one who knows you best and had every reason to condemn you chose instead to offer you kindness at the cross. Three reasons 
I only have time to talk about two. So if you will, suspend verse 20 just for this week. We'll get to it next week. It's the very heart of it all. It's great theology, but can I just say to you, we ought to forgive our families because we're not God. You might want to say it with me this morning. There is a God, and I am not he. It would help us to say that out loud. There is a God, I am not he. That's not only good theology, that's actually good grammar. It's not I am him, I am not him. It's I am not he. Somebody told me that when I first moved here, and I've always practiced it ever since. There is a God, and I am not he. And in the scripture, you will find Joseph saying in verse 19, am I in the place of God? Just answer that question this morning. Are you in the place of God? Are you the center of your own universe? If you are, you can tell because if you're at the center of your own universe, anytime anybody crosses you, you want to take revenge It might be in traffic, it might be at work, it might be in your neighborhood, it might be in your house. But you'll know if you think you are God by the way you respond when somebody harms you. And I love the spiritual maturity of Joseph who lets God be God, who says, this really isn't about me, but God was working in ways that I could not imagine. And since I'm not God, I'm not going to take revenge on you. There are examples in the Bible of people who try to be God. For instance, and I'm indebted to Tim Keller for these thoughts. For instance, in, in Revelation chapter, I'm sorry, in Genesis chapter three, um, in verses five through seven, there's that moment when Satan says, if you eat the fruit, you will become like God. And Adam and Eve become their own moral authority. Just, I mean, it's amazing to think God said yes to everything in the garden, just no to that one tree. But Satan says, what about that one tree? And Adam and Eve say, it looks good. It sounds good. What if we became like God And we knew the difference between good and evil like God does. And they place themselves as their own moral authority. And if you look around in our world, there are a lot of people doing that today. I don't know what the Bible says, but that's written by people years ago. What does that have to do with me? I've always thought, I've always felt, you can hear it when people say, I, I, I. You hear it, for instance, in Isaiah chapter 14. I think these are the words of Satan when he tries to usurp the throne of God. And five times in those verses, he says, I will, I will, I will. I will ascend to the heavens. I will be bigger than God. And now Satan is saying to Adam and Eve, you could be bigger than God. You, you see it at the Tower of Babel in, in Genesis chapter 11 when they say, we'll build a city and we'll build a tower and we'll make a name for ourselves bigger than the heavens themselves. We'll be bigger than God. You see it sometimes when, when somebody thinks that somebody else is the ultimate answer to their need instead of God. It's in Naaman the Syrian in 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 7, when he says to the king of Israel, I hear that there's healing in Israel and I'd like to buy some, please. Where is my healing? And the king says, am I God? What's he saying? I'm not in a place to offer healing. God can heal, but I can't heal. And yet time and again in relationships, we will anticipate that somebody else will meet all of our needs. You hear it in that, in that story of the, of the father and, and mother of the daughter who brings her fiance home 
for the weekend. It's the first time they meet this young man and the mother says, you need to find out what he's about. And so the father takes the young man in the other room and they're drinking coffee together and he says, um, how do you plan to buy an engagement ring for my daughter, one that's fitting of what she deserves? He said, well, I'm a seminary student and I'm going to study the Bible and God's going to provide. And he said, really? So how are you going to make a living for my daughter? He said, well, I'm a seminary student. I'll study. God will provide. He said, really? So if you have children, how are you going to provide for those children? He said, well, I'm going to study the Bible and God will provide. Afterward, the mother asked the father, so how did it go? The father said, pretty good. The, the, the bad news is he has no plans for his life about how to make any money. The good news is he thinks I'm God. <laughs> he thinks I'm going to provide for all of his needs. Well, look, here's the deal. Sometimes in a relationship, in a marriage, we will say, if I can marry that person, they'll provide for all of my needs. But we discover the disappointment eventually that no person should ever be placed in the role of God. Nobody can ever meet our ultimate needs except God. And the king of Israel in that Second Kings 5 story, he doesn't know much, but at least he knows that, that he is not God. You know when else we play God? When we worry. When you and I worry, Matthew chapter 6 tells us that Jesus said, consider the lilies. They don't toil or spin, but your father clothes them. You worry about what you're going to eat. You worry about what you're going to drink. You worry about what you're going to wear, but the father is the one who can provide for you. So what happens when you and I worry about something? I'm preaching to myself this morning. What happens when we worry about something? We usurp the place of God. That's why Paul says, be anxious for nothing. But pray, why? Because God can do something about it. I can't. We spend a great deal of our time and energy worrying about things over which we have no ultimate control. But there is a God who does. So don't worry. Why? Because when you do, you're putting yourself in God's place. And I'll tell you when else. And Joseph shows us that we put ourselves in the place of God. Whenever we carry a grudge and we say, I will eventually pay that person back. What we're doing really is taking the place of God. In the New Testament, Romans chapter 12, Paul writes to the church there and says, leave room for God because he's the one who says vengeance is mine. That's why you can forgive. That's why you can be kind to others. As far as it's possible, um, live at peace with everyone. Don't take revenge, but leave room for God. Why? God says, I will repay. And Joseph knows that he's not God, and so he forgives. When we do any of these things we've been talking about, what we're doing is sitting on God's throne, and that's a dangerous place for us to be. Ask the people at the Tower of Babel. (laughs) It's not a safe place to be. Ask Adam and Eve. You try to be in God's place, and it gets you nowhere. Maybe you saw that movie, The King's Speech. I don't recommend the language of that movie. I don't want to say sit down with your children and watch this movie. But it's interesting to me that at the sort of dramatic, climactic moment of the movie when the character played by Jeffrey Rush is trying to convince the king of England that he really does have a voice and he can speak, finally he provokes him. They're standing in the throne room. This new king is supposed to give a speech, but he knows he can't do it. And he turns around and he's giving all the reasons why he can't. And when he turns back around, Jeffrey Rush is sitting on the throne of the king of England. This speech coach is sitting on the king's throne. Now, we may lose that sort of pageantry in the U.S., but it's not lost on people in Great Britain that there are places we're supposed to be and places we're not supposed to be. 
And here, here is Jeffrey Rush, the speech coach, sitting in the king's chair. And, and the king finally finds his voice and says, get out of my chair. That's the stone of scone. All the kings of England have sat there. Commoners don't sit there. You have no right to be in that chair. And I just hear the heavenly father saying, every time I carry a grudge and say, vengeance is mine, Seth Dwayne. I hear God saying, yeah, get out of my chair. That's not your chair. You're not God. You're not in my place. You you don't have the knowledge I have. You don't have the right I have. And you don't have the power I have to be a just judge. But God says, I do. And you can trust me. Here's the amazing irony. The quickest way for you and I to become like Satan is to try to play God. The more we try to play God, the more that very power will corrupt us. You see it in the movie, The Lord of the Rings. That ring has amazing power. In Tolkien's book, that ring has amazing power. But even the little hobbit Frodo knows the only thing you can do with something like that, when you have that kind of power over people, is to throw it into the fire. Because nobody is trustworthy with ultimate power except God. That's an amazing metaphor, Tim Keller says, for forgiveness. You have power over somebody. You have the right to harm them or to exact vengeance because they have wronged you and you are in the moral uh, authority. You, you are in the place. And what, you know, what do you do with that? Throw it in the fire because you and I are not trustworthy with that kind of power. We have to trust God. Now, here's the, here's the great truth. The quickest way for you and I to become like Satan is to try to play God. But the quickest way for you and I to actually become like God is to let God be God. And then we begin to image God's love to other people. How can we possibly forgive people for the atrocities that happen in our world? We're going to talk about September 11th next week. How can we possibly forgive? How can we possibly move on? How can we do that? Well, when we realize that we're not God and that God is working all things together for good in ways that we can't imagine, then we can be like Joseph, what does Joseph do in verse 21? He says, I forgive you and I will feed you. Listen to what he says. Listen to the compassion. I will provide for you. Look, the first thing he says is, I've already forgiven you. I I release you. I redeem you. I reconcile with you. Our relationship is restored. I forgive you, though you have harmed me. Can you really forgive your family, for what they've done to you? Can you really release them? If Joseph could, you could. If Jesus could, then you and I can. Miroslav Volf, whom I quoted at the beginning of this sermon, is so clear in in saying For evil to ultimately prevail, it has to win two victories. Evil has to be perpetrated, and then somebody has to pay it back. That's when evil ultimately prevails. 
He tells a story from his own family about a brother that he never knew, an older brother named Daniel. Daniel, who loved as a toddler to go and and play in the street. Uh, He ran into the soldiers there, and he was a hero to them, and they were heroes to him, and they would put him on top of their horses. And one day Daniel slipped out and got on a horse, and the soldiers were taking him through a gate. And in a tragedy, Daniel was killed And as a result, his parents didn't get to raise that little boy. And Miroslav Volf never got to know his older brother, Daniel. But Miroslav Volf said there was an aunt, Melitza, who was watching Daniel that day. She was supposed to keep him from going outside. If she had done her job, he never would have been harmed. But Volf says, I never knew that. When I was growing up, I never knew that. Because my family practiced Christianity. They forgave Aunt Melitza, and they never held it against her. And I learned, he said, as a child, that families really can forgive. I wonder, does your family practice Christianity? It's not enough to like Jesus. We're supposed to become like Jesus. And Jesus on the cross said, Father, Forgive them. They know not what they do. You remember, don't you, that we serve the God who forgives. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord, Isaiah 1.18. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they'll be like, well, if we confess our sins to God, 1 John 1.9, he will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Don't you love the fact that our Father is the one who forgives? Don't you love that God is the God who forgives? It's not enough to like God. We're supposed to become like God, and we're never more like God than when we forgive our enemies, especially when those enemies are in our own families. But Joseph doesn't stop there. He doesn't say, okay, I'm not going to kill you for what you did to me. Listen to what he says in verse 21. I will provide for you and for your children. What's he saying? We're a family. I've got a responsibility to you. We who are in the fourth generation of this family, but there's a fifth generation on the horizon. And if I will feed them, then maybe the pain of this family can move forward. We can release that pain and move into the peace of who we are supposed to be as a family. But if I can't forgive you, it won't just curse you. It will curse your children. So I'll forgive you. And I'll feed you. Let me tell you about God's forgiveness. Jesus' death on the cross doesn't just mean that God won't kill you. And we're grateful for that. What it means is he will provide for you. He will love you. It's Romans 5. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't when we cleaned up our act. It wasn't when we got together. Read Romans 5. While we were enemies of God, while we were literally ekthroi, haters of God, That's when God loved us most. That's when he gave us his salvation. And the end of Romans chapter 12, verses 20 and 21 say, here's the deal. When somebody harms you, feed them. If they're hungry, feed them. If they're naked, clothe them. Because when you do, you're letting God be God and you're giving them the chance to see who God really is. 
When I was a seminary student, Jess Moody came and preached, this preacher from, from California. And he told a story about a boy who had a favorite dog. The boy loved the dog, but the dog apparently loved eggs. And so he wandered the farms around him and stole from their chicken coops. And old man Jones across the street confronted the boy one day and said, the next time your dog comes in my chicken coop, he's going to be dead. And he tried to chain his dog, but his dog got loose. And one day he's coming home from school and the worst has happened. His dog's carcass is hanging on a fence post. Old man Jones has shot his dog. He walks right into his house. This boy does. He walks right past his mother who knows what has happened. He walks right into his room, pulls out his shotgun and starts to march out the front door. And she says, what are you doing? He said, I'm going to, I'm going to shoot old man Jones's horse. She said, you wouldn't. He said, I would. She said, you couldn't. He said, I could. As he's walking up that dirt road, she yells from the porch, don't debate. Don't escalate. For heaven's sake, bake him a cake. And he turned around and said, what did you say? She said, bake him a cake. He spent the afternoon with his arms covered in flour, baking a homemade cake for the man who shot his dog. And then he carried grudgingly that cake across the road up the long dirt driveway to old man Jones's porch, knocked on the door, and with all the love of Seinfeld for Newman, he said, this is for you. The next Sunday, when the boy and his mother went to church, something they had never seen before, old man Jones was sitting on the back row of the church, and at the invitation, he walked to the front of the church and became a Christian. And when the pastor asked him why, he said, I came here today because I wanted to see what kind of God would make a boy bake a cake for the man who shot his dog. Go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your presence in this place. Thank you for your amazing grace and love. Help us, Lord, not only to thank you for your forgiveness, but to become forgiving people and to start in our own circle of relationships with our own family. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.